Hey there, welcome back to 3 Star 4 Governator Show. Let's see what kind of interesting thing is on YouTube. Let's see here. <clears throat> Democrats officially will retain control of the U.S. Senate. Catherine Cortez Masto wins re-election. Congratulations. Um, Lauren Boebert's opponent issues major news on the race. What's that all about? Did he fucking concede? God, I hope not. Now we've got the Democratic nominee for Colorado's 3rd Congressional District locked in a back and forth battle with Lauren Boebert. Adam Frisch, thank you so much for taking the time today. Great to see you. So as I mentioned before, you're locked in a super close race between you and Lauren Boebert. I believe that you're about uh, just a little over a thousand votes down as of right now. We're recording this on Saturday. Oh my God. Um, so I guess first off, could you explain how many ballots are still outstanding in that race? Great to see everybody here. So we think that there's somewhere between three and 6,000 ballots um, huh. that are outstanding. We're down by about 1,000. We're down about 0.3%. Uh, at 0.5% or closer. The Secretary of State pays for and does an automatic recount, so we feel pretty comfortable, for better or worse, we're going to end up getting in a recount um, no matter what, and so this thing could go on for a little bit longer than a lot of us would like. Um, you know, we think there's somewhere between 500 and 550 overseas ballots that are outstanding. They have until uh, this coming Wednesday, um, I believe it's either 5 p.m., 7 p.m., or 11.59 p.m., to come into the county clerk's office. We think there's another 1,500 uh, ballots that haven't had a chance to be counted that were shuffling around the state that were just not counted. And for some technical reasons, they hold them off the 27 county clerks. We think there's a close to about 1,000 ballots that need to be cured. C-U-R-E-D, so new verb for a lot of people. That means the ballot's 95% valid. It just has to confirm that the signature is right or that the date was put on there right. And so a lot of us are spending time curing those ballots. So that's about 3,000 ballots that we know for sure that are in some type of Secretary of State's hands or county clerk's hands just have them counted. Then we think there's a whole nother two to 3,000 ballots that we assume are going to come in since those last numbers I brought up to you, or we should be here by the end of the day on Wednesday. So that's where we get to three to the 6,000 ballots. That's what the, the local political press in Colorado thinks as well. Um, so that's the ballots. On the timing, and this is where we get frustrated for a lot of us, is that we don't think there's really going to be a big update until probably next Thursday or Friday. We might see a couple ballots trickle in or a trickle in and then announced. Um, maybe on Monday or Tuesday, but we have a feeling that the county clerks are really going to just hold off until that Thursday or Friday before they make an announcement. Do you have any indication as to how those ballots that we are waiting on are breaking, just based on how similar ballots have broken in the past? No, it's, it's a little bit hard. I mean, on, on one level, there's this uh, assumption that um, the overseas ballots normally lead, lead Democratic that's what a lot of Democrats think is least, and they must have that based off on something. I'm kind of new to this whole thing. Um, 
there's those that think the cured ballots are usually younger voters because they're not um, as experienced in actually filling out a ballot, um, which would possibly help us as well. Um, but we really don't know. You know, our district has 27 counties. We have um, some of the most um, blue counties in the country, and we have some of the most red counties in the country. From what we know, there's no geographical understanding uh, of those ballots. So it's a little bit of a mystery box about what's actually going to come out of there. Okay, and now can you speak about um, how many ballots as of right now still do need to be cured and what, and what the campaign is doing to reach out to those people? So, you know, my understanding is there's about almost a thousand ballots that need to be cured that are sitting in one of the 27 counties in our district. We need to. This is for this is for everybody. It's Democrat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. these are these are there's a thousand ballots that need to be cured. I think they're roughly along the lines of, you know, about what's called 25 or 30 percent Democratic um, you know, uh, 30 to 35% Republican, but you know, our district is 40 is more than 40% unaffiliated, which is our fancy term for calling them independent. And so, you know, we're basically neck and neck. It was basically 50, 50 right now. I'm a little bit under 50, 50, but the democratic registered participation in our district is only 25. So in theory, more than half of my votes came from non-democratic voters. Um, and so we think those cured ballots are roughly, the same amount. We think they might be a little bit more skewed Democratic, but we're working on calling people and texting people. There's kind of just a general public understanding of how people cure ballots. You know, we're working really hard. I'm assuming the Republicans are working hard as well. So that's the deal with all the technical stuff. Bigger picture now, I guess. How did how the hell did we end up in a situation where, like I said before, I mean, this is a race that was rated safely Republican. It's a race that was anywhere from R plus seven to R plus fifteen. You know, when when you were out in the campaign trail, what did you hear from independents and Republicans uh, who clearly weren't happy with uh, with Lauren Boebert? So, uh, you know, we, I'll talk about what I heard, but I'll say first, here's how I think it, it played out from a year ago when I looked at this race. You have eight or nine or ten really loud brand extremist Republicans out there in the country. Um, every single one of them had 65 to 75 percent wins in 2020, except for Representative Bobart. She only received 51 percent of the vote, did not win her home county. So my view is, oh, my goodness, those that know her best in 2020 did not care for her. And she comes from, a you know, a pretty rural, a pretty red district. Um, and a lot more people know her now and not for good reason. So I assume actually the closer her circle is. Um, the wider it is, the more people are going to be open to voting for someone else. And so one of the things that we had to have happen is that you needed to have a very weak electorally candidate. And while she's very loud and comes off as strong from a brand, it's pretty superficial because, again, she only got 51 percent of the vote in 2020. She would have had about 54 percent now because her district has been districted that, as you said, it got moved from kind of R5 to R somewhere around 7, 8, 9, 10, 538, even last week had this at an R15 district. The second thing is um, you needed to have a candidate that was going to work very, very hard, and we did, and I knew we were going to do that, and we drove 24,000, 23 or 24,000 miles. Our district is half the state of Colorado geography. It is larger than the state of Mississippi, and so a lot of hard work. Third is the candidate was going to have to have um, some policies and a personality that was 
that was going to connect with a lot of frustrated prior Lauren Bober voters. Uh, and I thought I had that in me uh, on the policies as well as you know, I usually get along with people fairly well. I'm a good listener and I, I have a pretty good grasp of some of the issues that are really facing a lot of people here. And so those are the three legs of which I was able to build this kind of, I'll say with a great team, was able to build like, you know, the moral victory. So we have the moral victory. We obviously want the real victory. So we're working on that. Um, I wish, at least in 2022, I don't think there were any other of these loud extremists that had any other chances to lose. I thought that a year ago when it played out. Um, I wish there were more opportunities, but there just weren't. And that's kind of why I'm like, oh my goodness, a year ago, like the world might end up focusing on CD3 because if we can make a go of it, we can make it very close. Um, it's a little daunting that there are literally hundreds of millions of people watching what's happening here, but we're um, sleeping well because we know we ran a really good race and we still like where we are. Yeah. And, and, and I should know too, that you're on the right side of this. So uh, yeah. Yeah. I like that part too. So um, what did we hear? What did I say that resonated? One, I said a lot of times that you know, if I only had six words to run the campaign, it was people want the circus to stop. I've been saying that for a couple of years. It resonated in the most blue parts of our district, and it resonated in the most red parts of our district. I believe that 40% of the Republican Party wants their party back, and I needed to get about a fourth or a fifth of them. And so we've come pretty darn close to that. We'll see if it's enough. But we're really happy with uh, the focus on those just true prior Bobart voters that were sick and tired of the circus. And, you know, there's one conversation if you have traditional conservative or Republican values and we can have a conversation about how to make the country a better place. But, you know, you have this Trumpism wing of the party that I thought a year ago was going to start to sink. And obviously, um, I think one of the main consistent themes that we hear from the left or the right since Tuesday was Trump was a big loser, like um, a, 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 a smarter version of his played out in Florida in Governor DeSantis, but almost, almost, not exclusively, but almost everywhere else in the country, Trump's candidate lost, um, including against some um, well-funded, but also some not well-funded Democratic Party. So basically just Trumpism lost. I thought it was going to be a year ago, and, and Bobart is the definition of, of Trumpism. Um, I spent a lot of time talking about, you know, I think we need to build a coalition of the pro-normal party. That's a word my mom came up with, but this pro-normal party... I would call it tripartisan, Democrats, independents, and Republicans, you know, and that goes back to wanting the circus to stop. Was there a moment while you were out on the campaign trail where you realized that you do have a chance, like, even amid the fact that basically the entire media had written this this campaign off? Like, was, there, yeah. there a, was there a moment that you were like, oh, shit, this is, this is real? Yeah, you know, I would say about... But when I started, after I got by the, into the general election, I started to speak in front of some, in some conservative towns at the Chamber of Commerces, which are conservative small business owners. But um, most of them are pretty practical. And ranchers and farmers, which we have a lot of, are the ultimate pragmatic um, people because of how they have to live their lives. It's so hard out there dealing with Mother Nature and all the moving parts. And a lot of them are dealing with animals and livestock. And um, I spoke, the first couple of times I spoke to people, it seemed to resonate because I saw their heads nodding when I talked about what I wanted to focus on. 
And I didn't spend too much time talking about her, but when I did, they put their heads down and they knew what I was mentioning. Um, and they saw the effort. And when I was leaving, they came up to me and said, Adam, I like what you have to say. You got my vote. I've never not voted for Republican in for 30 years, whatever. So that's when I started to feel like we were resonating because again, yeah, that 50% or 60% of the Trump party that loves all that, the yelling and the screaming, I call it the angertainment industry. But, you know, for, for those Republicans that are more traditional, and they might even be very, very conservative, but they're more moderate in personality and they're kind and they're thoughtful and they want to build a good community. Um, and that doesn't, you know, being thoughtful and kind and building a good community is not a left or right thing. It's just more of who you are as a person. Um, and I knew, and we only needed 10 or 15% of our prior voters. And, you know, 36% of the Republican base voted against her in her own primary at the end of June. So I knew we were on to a path that I thought about a year ago, and we've executed it with a fabulous team very, very well. We're obviously all pulling for this race to, to go to you. I know that we're, we're watching really closely as these final ballots continue to trickle in. But if this race doesn't go your way, do you think that this result where it is so close causes Lauren Boebert to moderate her positions, or do you think that she just stays as extreme uh, as she's been thus far? Hey guys, it's Daniel here from Evolve Artists. Maybe you've heard from me before. I make videos to help artists make better paintings, but I wanna make sure that you don't miss the upcoming webinar with the master, Kevin Murphy. He's the guy who taught me everything that I know, and this is going to be you know, I think you're starting to see a lot of Republicans nationally realize that Trumpism is dying. I think you're seeing a lot of voters who are normally uh, conservative or Trump or, or Republican starting to realize that that's starting to die out. I think that's a good news for the Republican Party and it's a good news for the for the country, most importantly. As to Representative Boba herself, um, most people would realize maybe we need to do a course correct and actually spend time focusing on the district and not flying around the country, especially in Mar-a-Lago. Or maybe realize maybe I should actually spend more time in my district and focus on the needs of them and return the phone calls to those that have been calling me, which she hasn't been. Do I think she's going to do it? It's going to be hard to say. I'll let others figure that out. Um, if past is prologue, um, she won't. But I'm a big believer in incentives, and the incentive for her has been yell and scream and rally up that angertainment, and that worked once um, in 2020, not by a lot, but she thought it was. Obviously, she would have taken the job more seriously. So if I had money to bet or I was forced to bet, I'd bet that she's not going to course correct, and she's, she's already blaming other people about why she did so poorly. Um, she's blaming other Republicans. She's blaming everyone but herself. Uh, just like Donald Trump is doing right now. And so um, I hope, you know, on behalf of, if she does win, for the sake of the district, I hope she does course correct. I really don't care about the yelling and the screaming. What I care about is she's not focused on this district. And I want her to focus on this district because the men and women and the kids and the families and the businesses and the communities of this district want somebody to focus on them and not on the representative self. So for her sake, uh, I really don't care. For the for the, her constituents' sake, or and for my community members' sake, I hope she does focus on the district. But if she doesn't anymore, um, I'm a big believer she will definitely will be tossed in 2024. And I think, with regard to exactly that point, you know, we've we've seen that these house races in in close districts are oftentimes more of a, a marathon than they are a sprint, and we watched 
as you know, Marie Newman took took shots uh, multiple times at Dan Lipinski, who was a super conservative Democrat up in uh, in Illinois, and it took a couple uh, cycles before people recognized who he was, and before people kind of learned who she was. And and uh, you know, as I said, uh, people are learned who you are very quickly. It's clear that they're not pleased with Lauren Boebert in that district. So this doesn't mean the end of the road in any case, whether it's in 2022 or 2024. Um, but with that said, you know, we're always looking for more data points on how to win in red districts because you know we, we can't win everywhere if we don't run everywhere. What advice do you have for Democrats who are running in these districts that we would consider uh, safely Republican, um, especially in an era of such high polarization? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think two things need to happen minimally. One, you need to find a, 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 a candidate that can really resonate with people. Now, in CD3, a district that's 25D, 31R, 43 unaffiliated, and, and people think is somewhere between R8 and 15, I thought, excuse me, I thought it was going to be required to be a, a, a moderate, pragmatic business person, which I am. And that's, I think that's one of the reasons we did so well. Regardless of anything, you have to be willing to do a lot, a lot of work with some really good qualified people. Um, it can't be done on a whim. It doesn't mean you need an un, un, unlimited amount of money. We were outspent by her vastly, and here we are almost 50-50. But you really have to have a quality campaign. Um, you know, John Fetterman is a lot more progressive than I am, uh, but he was able to do well. So it's, I'm not saying that every single person has to be center center-left candidate, but that's what this district needs. Um, and, you know, sadly, unfortunately, you need to find out and be realistic, not just emotional, uh, just because you really, 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 really want to defeat someone or the country really, really wants to defeat someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene. I, I just ask people to really focus on doing a little bit of simple math, which is, is there someone that if you can get 10 or 15 percent of the prior voters, can that go on to your, your normal base uh, and will that get you to 50 plus one? Uh, and too many times, with respect to people running, um, we see people um, absorbing a lot of money, a lot of media cycle, and going after races, and they're losing by 10 or 15 points. And so everyone who wants to run should run. It's not just about defeating that person in that one time. It's about sending a message. I, I believe in that. But my view was I wasn't going to get into what I thought was going to be a long shot, even though everyone else thought it was going to be a long shot. I only was going to go after this if I could really look people in the eye and say, I truly believe there's a path, and here's the math how to do it, um, and I need your help. And it was a lonely ask for many, many months, but we finally were able to break through the, the donor cycle and the media cycle. And, and you know, here we are, um, you know, 0.3% behind. We were up by a point and a half on election night. So we're in the mix. Um, I'm getting calls from a lot of important people in D.C. They're very aware of how well the race we ran, and they're very well aware that they did not return any phone calls for months. <laughs> uh, but I'm not a vengeful person. Uh, I don't hold them against them. There's a lot of other races to focus on. But, you know, the main thing is, is that we're in the ability to really defeat one of the true and only extremists that has any chance of being defeated. And we're proud for that. We're humbled by all the support we're getting from literally all over the world, but definitely all over the country. And to build on that now, how could we best help? Like, what what does the campaign need in terms of reaching out to voters to cure ballots? What can we do? 
Yeah. So um, pop on the website that's over my shoulder at adamforcolorado.com. There's a way to donate still. Again, $5, $25, you know, up to a couple thousand bucks. But these small donations really matter a lot. We need the money for the legal fund to to possibly take on one of the most litigious persons uh, and fiery persons in, in politics in the country right now as well. We also... Uh, have a lot of we basically have a new get out the vote um, team that we also need to pay for as well so we'd love support from there um, if there's people to help it will say on the website about how people can help uh, who to contact to help share which is making phone calls or sending text messages um, if anybody does know anybody in western or southern Colorado please reach out to them and make sure that their ballot um, is confirmed you can go on the secretary of website for that or if they want to do some door docking again you can go on the you can go on the website at adamforcolorado.com about how to help. And I think that's really important. You know, our towns are Grand Junction and Pueblo and Aspen and Tire Riding and Crested Butte, uh, Durango, Alamosa, um, Rangeley, and, and those in Montrose. So those are the big cities we have. But if you know anybody out there, just check in with them. They can get a hold of the county list of voters and they can look for those that are yous or ours that might be friendly to us and we'd love to get those phone calls made thank you so much for taking the time and thank you for running uh you know such a great campaign and inspiring campaign and kind of showing everybody that there's hope to 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 really take on and hopefully cast out these extremist republicans who are kind of just dragging the entire political system down with it so uh, we appreciate it we'll keep pulling for you and uh and thanks for thanks again for taking the time Thanks so much. Great to you. Have a great day and to all your listeners. I know you have a big following and thanks everybody for the time. Laundry detergent exposed. Sadly, this is where our recycled plastic ends up. And here's the scary part. Almost 90% of plastic isn't isn't uh, recycled. It's really hard to believe Colorado is just that stupid to vote her back in. What a flippin' nightmare. I don't think she worked the whole time she owned her seat, but she can sure spend their money. So refreshing to hear her level-headed since they're an honest political candidate. <sighs> Unbelievable. What the fuck is wrong with you, Colorado idiots? Call her Nazi Barbie. Uh, Join the TS Anti Hero Challenge. I'm going to do one on my 
beauty mark. Anunnaki origins of the universe, that sounds pretty great. Ah. <clears throat> Swifts or, um, you know, they're kind of her alter ego. I did, I noticed that the Taylor Swift podcast I did got a little bit more listens than usual. And then my the Michael Cohen one got like 135. That's amazing. Okay, I want to listen to Anunnaki Origins of the Universe, Sumerian History of the Gods on Earth one year ago. Purify your metabolism back to teenage levels by eating one half teaspoon of this with water and burning fat like... Sumerian Origins channel. The extant myths of the Sumerians and Akkadians revolve primarily about the creation and organization of the universe, the origin of the gods, their epic tales, their ancient sites and intrigues, their astronomical achievements, their creative building projects for the gods. The Sumer-Akkadian myths rarely revolve around the struggle for power between the gods, and even then the struggle is not usually depicted as a bitter, vindictive and godly conflict. Intellectually, the Sumer-Akkadian myths reveal a relatively mature and sophisticated approach to the gods' religious activities. Behind them can be recognized as considerable theological and cosmological reflection. No Sumerian myths have been recovered dealing directly and explicitly with the creation of the universe. What little is known about the Sumerian cosmogonic ideas has been inferred and deduced from laconic statements scattered throughout the literary documents. We have several myths concerned with the organization of the universe and its cultural processes, the creation of man and the establishment of civilization. The deities involved in these myths are relatively few. The air god Enlil, the water god Enki, the mother goddess Ninhursag, also known as Nin and Ninma, the god of the south wind Ninurta, and the moon god Nanasin, the Eridu god Maltu, and above all the goddess Inanna, particularly concerning her unlucky spouse Dumuzi.
Mountains. Enlil was the most important deity of the Sumerian pantheon, the father of the gods, the king of heaven and earth, the king of all the lands. According to the myth, Enlil and the creation of the pickaxe, he was the god who separated heaven from earth, brought up the seed of the land from the earth, brought forth whatever was needful, fashioned the pickaxe for agricultural and building purposes, and presented it to the people of Dilmun, the Sumerians, or perhaps humankind. According to the myth Summer and Winter, Enlil was the god who brought forth all trees and grains, produced abundance and prosperity in the land, and appointed Winter as the farmer of the gods, in charge of the life-producing water and of all that grows. The gods, even the most important among them, are all eager for his blessing. After building his sea house in Eridu, one myth relates how the water god Inki journeyed to Enlil's temple in Nippur to obtain his approval and benediction. When the moon god, Nanasin, the astronomy deity of Ur, wants to ensure the well-being and prosperity of his domain, he journeys to Nippur on a boat loaded with gifts and thus obtains Enlil's generous blessing. Although Enlil is the chief of the Sumerian pantheon, his powers are not unlimited and absolute. One of the more human and tender of the Sumerian myths concerns Enlil's banishment to the netherworld and tells the following story. When the man had not yet been created, and the city of Nippur was inhabited by gods alone, its young man was the Enlil, its young maid was the goddess Ninlil, and its old woman was Ninlil's mother, Nunbashangunu. One day the latter, having set her mind and heart on Ninlil's marriage to Enlil, instructs her daughter thus, In the pure night sky, look up to the stars, Ninlil, walk along the bank of the stream, Nunburdu, the bright-eyed, the lord, the bright-eyed, the great mountain, Father Enlil, the bright-eyed will see you, the shepherd, who decrees the fates, the bright-eyed will see you, will forthwith embrace. Ninlil joyfully follows the instructions. The woman looks up at the stars. In the pure stream, Ninlil walks along the bank of the stream, Nunburdu, the bright-eyed, the lord, the bright-eyed. The great mountain, Father Enlil, the bright-eyed saw her, the shepherd, who decrees the fates, the bright-eyed saw her. After that, Enlil calls his vizier, Nusku, and tells him of his desire for the astronomer Ninlil. Nusku brings up a boat, and Enlil gives Ninlil the gift of the moon god Sin. The gods are dismayed by this immoral deed, and though Enlil is their king, they seize him and banish him from the city to the netherworld. The relevant passage, one of the few to shed some indirect light on the organization of the pantheon and its method of operation, reads, Enlil walks about Nikir, Ninlil's private shrine. As Enlil walks about in Kir, the great gods, the fifty of them, of Igigi fame, the fate-decreeing gods, the seven of them, seize Enlil in the Kir, saying, Enlil, immoral one, get you out of the city. Nunamnir, an epithet of Enlil, an immoral one, get you out of the city. Thus Enlil, under the fate decreed by the gods, departs the Sumerian Hades. Ninlil, however, now refuses to remain behind and follows Enlil on his forced journey to the netherworld. This disturbs Enlil, for it would mean that his son Sin, destined initially to oversee the largest luminous body, the moon, would have to dwell in the dark, gloomy netherworld instead of in the sky. To circumvent this, he seems to devise the somewhat complicated scheme. On the way to Hades from Nippur, he meets up with three individuals, minor deities no doubt, 
the gatekeeper in charge of the Nippur Gate, the man of the Netherworld River, and the ferryman, the Sumerian Charon, who ferries the dead across to Hades. Enlil takes the form of each of these, the first known examples of divine metamorphosis, and impregnates Enlil with three Netherworld deities as substitutes for their older brother Sin, who is thus free to ascend to heaven. One of the more detailed and revealing of the Sumerian myths concerns the universe's organization by Enlil, the Sumerian water god, who was also the god of wisdom. The myth begins with a hymn of praise addressed to Enki, which exalts Enki as the god who watches over the universe and handles the fertility of fields, farms, flock, and herds. There follows a pace of self-glorification put into the mouth of Enki and concerned primarily with his relationship to the leading deities of the pantheon, and Enlil and Nintu, and to the lesser gods known collectively as the Anunnaki. Following a brief five-line passage that tells of the Anunnaki doing homage to Enki, Enki utters a paean of self-glorification for a second time. He begins by exalting the power of his word and command in providing the earth with prosperity and abundance. Continues with a description of the splendor of his shrine, the Abzu, and concludes with an account of his joyous journey over the marshland in his Makuru boat. The ibex of the Abzu, after which the lands Magan, Dilmun, and Meluha sent their heavily laden boats to Nippur with rich gifts for Enlil. Then the Anunnaki once again pay homage to Enki, particularly as the god who rides and directs Nurta, the divine laws which govern the universe. The poet now introduces a description of the various rites and rituals performed by some of the more important priests and spiritual leaders of Sumer in Enlil's Abzu shrine. Beginning as might have been expected with Sumer itself, he first exalts it as a chosen, hallowed land with lofty and untouchable Ninurta, where the gods have taken up their abode, then blesses its flocks and herds, its temples and shrines. From Sumer, he proceeds to Ur, which he extols in lofty, metaphorical language, and blesses with prosperity and preeminence. Ur goes to Maluba and blesses it most generously with trees and reeds, oxen and birds, gold, tin, and bronze. Following this, he provides Dilmun, Ilam, Mabashi, and Matu with their needs, after which we find Enki and his boat once again all set to decree the fates. Enki now turns from the fate and destiny of the various lands which made up the Sumerian inhabited world and performs a whole series of acts vital to the earth's fertility and productiveness. Directing himself first to its physical features begins by filling the Tigris with fresh, sparkling, life-giving water. In the concrete metaphorical imagery of a poet, Enki is a rampant bull who mates with the river imagined as a wild cow. Then, to ensure that the Tigris and Euphrates function properly, he appoints the god Enbelulu, the canal inspector, to take charge of them. Enki next called the marshland and the cane break, supplied them with reeds, and appointed a deity who loves. The name is illegible to take charge of them. He then turns to the sea, erects his holy shrine, and places the goddess Nanshi, the lady of Sirara, in charge. Finally, Enki called the life-giving rain, made it come down on earth, and put the storm god Ishka in charge. Enki applied himself to the earth's cultural needs. He attends to the plough, yoke, and furrow, and appoints Enlil's farmer, in Kimdu, in charge of them. He next calls the cultivated field, brings forth its varied grains and vegetables, and makes the grain goddess Ashnan responsible for them. 
He looks after the pickaxe and brick mold and puts the brick god Kula in charge of them. He lays foundations, aligns the bricks, builds a house and puts Mushtama, the great boulder of Enlil, in charge. Leaving the farm, field and house, Enki directs his attention to the high plain, covers it with green vegetation, multiplies its cattle. I'm shifting. All the problems on this planet, bar natural phenomena, are caused by human beings. They're caused by the human condition. It's the greatest problem on the planet. Solving it has the power to end all of the suffering because it deals with the fundamental insecurity that drives all of human psychosis. Such a wonderful discovery. The clarity of it is, is euphoric. It totally rewrite my understanding of the world. I came across Jeremy's the interview and I decided to listen and it just blew me away. It brings about the true liberation of women and the reconciliation of the sexes. This understanding of the human condition will end all prejudices like racism forever. It has also impressed Professor Harry Prosen, who is one of the world's leading psychiatrists. And he said, I quote, I have no doubt that Jeremy Griffith's biological explanation of the human condition is the holy grail of insight we have sought for the psychological rehabilitation of the human race. So, you just need to listen to this interview. I stumbled on the interview of Australian biologist Jeremy Griffith. Jeremy's interview was amazing and astonishingly insightful, as all the missing pieces of the great jigsaw puzzle of human nature fall into their proper places. I stumbled upon this interview and I was like mesmerized. The clarity of understanding that this gives is absolutely brilliant. Jeremy explains it so holistically, and he credits some of the most honest, profound thinkers in human history, gets to the bottom of every single topic that has perplexed mankind for so long. Things like the difference between men and women and the difference between races. This has changed the way I see people. I now understand why they are like it. It's transformed my second marriage. I understand how he ticks and how men tick and why. There's such an impoverishment of spirit now pervading really globally. And I think the reconciliation of the intellect and the heart and the soul and the imagination and, you know, of the human heart, mind, soul struggling to make sense of its life world. And now with Jeremy Griffith's work, we can make sense of the life world, which is, well, hallelujah, <laughs> hallelujah. That deals with the core of life. It deals with how we can understand things at the core. So we could move forward with a fuller understanding. We've never answered the core question of who are we as a species? What are our origins? What's the meaning of life? What are we supposed to do with our lives? And those questions have been puzzling me all my life, and now I have the answers to it. Heal my depression. I can sleep at night. I, I don't feel stressed. I don't feel guilty. I don't have any shame. It totally rewrite my understanding of the world. Yeah, it's really life-changing. It really is. So, I don't care what you're doing. You need to stop and listen to this interview. a bald spot and now look at this I have more hair which is all due to Karenique it actually grew hair Karenique has given me more hair it has made my hair shiny it's even made my hair thicker I would have never thought that this 
and this can happen in such a simple product. Don't live with thinning hair. Now, Karenique, America's number one system to restore and regrow women's hair, has a special offer. These are real Karenique results. Over 2 million women have seen what Karenique can do for their thinning hair. If your hair is thinning, Karenique can get results like this for you, too. The Karenique system is the most complete, clinically proven hair regrowth system available. With results like this and our special offer, there's never been a better time to get started with Karenique. Karenique actually grows hair. New hairs have filled in the areas where I had patches of scalp showing. Actual growth of hair, new hair, grew on my head. My hair was falling out, it sucked, I'm miserable. I found Karenique. I have hair, I have beautiful hair. It's bold I, and you can see it, everything's filled in. It's, it's exciting. The Karenique system is fast and easy to use. It includes the sulfate and paraben-free shampoo and conditioner with a proprietary formula that helps fight hair loss. The Karenique Lift and Repair Treatment Spray, clinically proven to repair 96% of split ends with the first use. It helps stop hair loss from breakage. And the Karenique Hair Regrowth Treatment. It contains the only FDA-approved ingredient proven to regrow hair in women. Fuller, thicker, and healthier hair can be yours with Karenique. The Karenique system marries both the science that helps women regrow their hair with clinically proven ingredients with the beauty that makes their hair look thicker and fuller. I started using Karenique and almost immediately my hair stopped falling out. It's never too late to get your hair back because you can. That's the beauty of Karenique. Call or go online right now and get started on growing longer, stronger, thicker, healthier, and more beautiful hair with Karenique. If purchased separately, the products in this Karenique hair regrowth system could cost you $115. But when you order now, you can get started with a Karenique hair regrowth system for just $49.95. Order now and we'll double the value of your order because we're including this Karenique travel kit free. It's valued at over $50. And when you order right now, we'll upgrade your order to priority shipping. But you've got to order now to take advantage of this special offer. Look at this. I have more hair all due to Karenique. Get your confidence back. Get your hair back. If you use the Karenique system, it'll work. We are so sure Karenique works. We guarantee you will see new hair growth in four months or your money back. So order now for thicker, more beautiful hair with Karenique. and makes Sumugan, the king of the mountains, responsible for them. He next directs stalls and sheepfolds, supplies them with the best fat and milk, and appoints the shepherd god Dumuzi to take charge of them. He fixes the borders, presumably of cities and states, sets up boundary stones and appoints the sun god Utu, in charge of the entire universe. Finally, Enki attends to that which is a woman's task, especially the weaving of cloth, and puts Utu, the goddess of clothing, in charge. The myth now takes a rather unexpected turn as the poet brings on the scene the ambitious and aggressive Inanna, who feels that she's been sighted and left with no special powers and prerogatives. Bitterly, she complains about Enlil's sister Aruru, alias Nintu, and her, Inanna's sister goddesses, Ninusini, Ninmug, Nidaba, and Nanshi, have all received their respective powers and insignia, but that she, Inanna, has been singled out for neglectful and inconsiderate treatment.
Enki seems to be put on the defensive by Inanna's complaint, and he tries to pacify her by pointing out that she's quite several special insignia and prerogatives. The crook, staff, and ward of stewardship, oracular responses regarding war and battle, the weaving and fashioning garments, the power to destroy the indestructible, and to make perish the imperishable, as well as by giving her a special blessing. Following Enki's reply to Inanna, the poem closes with a four-line hymnal passage to Enlil. Another Enki myth tells an intricate yet somewhat obscure tale involving Paradise Land Dolmun, perhaps identified with ancient India. Briefly sketched, the plot of the Sumerian Paradise myth, which treats gods, not humans, runs thus. Dulmun is a land that is pure, clean and bright, a land of the living, which allows neither sickness nor death. What is lacking, however, is the fresh water so essential to animal and plant life. Therefore, the tremendous Sumerian water god Enki orders Utu, the sun god, to fill it with fresh water brought up from the earth. Dolmun is thus turned into a divine garden, green with fruit-laden fields and meadows. In this paradise of the gods, eight plants are made to sprout by Ninhursak, the great mother goddess of the Sumerians. Perhaps more originally, Mother Earth. She brings these plants into being only after an intricate process involving three generations of goddesses, all conceived by the water god and born so. Our poem repeatedly underlines without the slightest pain or travail because Enki wanted to taste them, his messenger, the two-faced god Isfrud, the Igigi Grandmaster, plucks these precious plants one by one and gives them to his master, Enlil, who eats them each, which point that anger Ninhursug pronounces upon him the curse of death. She disappears from among the gods to make sure that she does not change her mind and relent. Enki's health fails, eight of his organs become sick. As Enki sinks fast, the great gods sit in the dust, Enlil, the air god, the king of the Sumerian gods, seems unable to cope with the situation, when up speaks the fox. If properly rewarded, he says to Enlil, he, the fox, will bring Nunhursug back. As good as his word, the fox succeeds. The relevant passage is unfortunately destroyed, in having the mother goddess return to the gods and heal the dying water god. She seats him by her vulva, and after inquiring which eight organs of his body ache him, she brings into existence eight corresponding healing deities, and Enki is brought back to life and health. Although our myth deals with a divine rather than a human paradise, it parallels the biblical paradise story. First, there is some reason to believe that the very idea of a paradise, a garden of the gods, is of Sumerian origin. The Sumerian paradise is located, according to our poem, in Dulmun. In this same Dulmun, where later the Mesopotamians, the Semitic people who conquered the Sumerians, located their land of the living, the home of their immortals. Furthermore, there is a good sign that the biblical paradise is described as a garden planted eastward in Eden. From whose waters, how the four world rivers, including the Tigris and Euphrates, may have been originally identical Dulmun, the Sumerian paradise land. Again, the passage in our poem describing the watering of Dulmun by the sun god with fresh water brought up from the earth is reminiscent of the biblical, but there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Genesis 2-6 Enki's eating of the eight plants and the curse uttered against him for this misdeed recalled the eating of the fruits of the tree of knowledge by Adam and Eve and the curses pronounced against each of them for this sinful action. Without pain or travail, the birth of the goddesses illuminates the background of the curse against Eve, that it shall be her lot to conceive in sorrow.
Perhaps the most exciting result of our comparative analysis of the Sumerian poem is the explanation which it provides for one of the most puzzling motifs in the biblical paradise story. The famous passage describing the fashioning of Eve, the mother of all living, from the rib of Adam. For why a rib? Why did the Hebrew storyteller find it more fitting to choose a rib rather than any of the other parts of the body for the fashioning of the woman whose name Eve, according to the biblical notion, means approximately she who makes live? The reason becomes quite clear if we assume a Sumerian literary background, such as that represented by our Dilmun poem underlying the biblical paradise tale. For in our Sumerian poem, one of Enki's sick members is the rib. Now, the Sumerian word for rib is ti, pronounced ti. Therefore, the goddess created for the healing of Enki's rib was called in Sumerian ninti, the lady of the rib. The same Sumerian word ti also means to make live. The name ninti may thus mean the lady who makes live, as well as the lady of the rib. Therefore, in Sumerian literature, the lady of the rib came to be identified with the lady who makes live through what may be termed a play of words. It was this, one of the most ancient of literary puns. Turn up that incline. Nine five seconds now. Let's go, Peloton. Say the same thing. They chasing the fame. They all want the name. You're stronger than you think, Peloton. Do these things. Make way for the king. Great work, team. which was carried over and perpetuated in the biblical paradise story. Although here, of course, it loses its validity since the Hebrew word for rib and that for who makes live have nothing in common. There is also an Enkin and Hirsuk myth concerned with the creation of man from clay that is over the abyss. The story begins with a description of the difficulties of the gods in procuring their bread, especially as might have been expected after the female deities had come into being. The gods complain but Enki, the water god, who, as the Sumerian god of wisdom, might have been expected to come to their aid, is lying asleep in the deep and cannot hear them. Thereupon his mother, the primeval sea, the mother who gave birth to all the gods, brings the tears of the gods before Enki, saying, O oh my son, rise from your bed for your work, what is wise? Fashion servants of the gods, may they produce their doubles. Enki gives the matter thought, leads forth the host of good and princely fashioners, and says to his mother, Namu, the primeval sea, O oh my mother, the creature whose name you uttered, it exists, bind upon it the image of the gods. Mix the heart of the clay that is over the abyss. The excellence and princely fashioners will thicken the clay. You, do you bring the limbs into existence? Ninma, the earth mother goddess, will work above you. The goddess will stand by you at your fashioning. The poem now turns from the creation of man to the creation of certain imperfect human types to explain the existence of these abnormal beings. It tells of a feast arranged by Enki for the gods, no doubt to commemorate man's creation. At this feast, Enki and Ninma drink a lot of wine and become somewhat exuberant. Ninma then takes some clay over the abyss and fashions different abnormal individuals, while Enki decrees their fate and gives them bread to eat. After Nanma had created these six types of man, Enki creates his own. Going about it is not clear, but whatever he does, the resulting creature is a failure. It is weak in body and spirit. Enki is now anxious that Nanma help this forlorn creature. He, therefore, addresses her. 
of him who your hand has fashioned. I have decreed the fate, have given him bread to eat. Do you decree the fate of him who in my hand is fashioned? Do you give him bread to eat? Ninmar tries to be good to the creature, but to no avail. She talks to him, but he cannot answer. She gives him bread to eat, but he does not reach out for it. He can neither sit nor stand, nor bend the knees. Following a long but yet unintelligible conversation between Enki and Ninmar, the latter utters a curse against Enki because of the sick, lifeless creature which he produced. A curse which Enki seems to accept as his due. Of Ninurta, the god of the stormy south wind, there is a myth with a dragon-slaying motif. Following a brief hymnal passage to the god, the plot begins with an address to Ninurta by the Sharu, his personified weapon. For some unstated reason, the Sharu perhaps set his mind against Asag, the demon of sickness and disease whose abode is in the Kur, or netherworld. In a full of phrases extolling the heroic qualities and deeds of Ninurta, he urges him to attack and destroy the monster. Ninurta sets out to do his bidden. At first, however, he seems to admit more than his match, and he flees like a bird. Once again, the Sharu addresses him with reassuring and encouraging words. Ninurta now attacks the Asag fiercely, with all the weapons at his command, and the demon is destroyed. With the destruction of the Asag, however, a severe calamity overtook Suma. The primeval waters of the Kur rose to the surface, and because of their violence, no fresh waters could reach the fields and gardens. The gods of Suma, who queried its pickaxe and basket, that is, who had charge of irrigating Suma and preparing it for cultivation, were desperate. The Tigris did not rise, it had no good water in its channel. Famine was severe, and nothing was produced. There was no washing of the hands at the small rivers, the waters rose not high. The fields are not watered, there were no digging of irrigation ditches, in all the lands there was no vegetation. Only weeds grew, thereupon the Lord put his lofty mind to it. Ninurta the son of Enlil brought great things into being. He set up a pile of stones over the Kur and heaped it up like a great wall in front of Suma. These stones held back the mighty waters, and as a result the waters of the Kur could rise no longer to the surface of the earth. As for waters which had already flooded the land, Ninurta gathered them and led them into the Tigris, which can now water the fields with its overbow. Alternatively, as the poet puts it, What had been scattered, he gathered. What of the Kur had been scattered, he guided and hurled into the Tigris. The high waters pour over the fields. Behold now, everything on earth. Rejoiced afar at Ninurta, the king of the land, the fields produced abundant grain. The vineyard and orchid bore their fruit. The harvest was heaped up in granaries and hills. The Lord made mourning to disappear from the land. He made happy the spirit of the gods. Hearing of her son's tremendous and heroic deeds, his mother's Nimma was taken with love for him. She became so restless that she could not sleep in her bedchamber. She therefore addresses Ninurta from afar with a prayer for permission to visit him and gaze upon him. Ninurta looks at her with the eye of life, just like his ancestors of Nibiru. Ninurta then blesses the hearsug, that it may produce all kinds of herbs, wine and honey, various kinds of trees, gold, silver and bronze, cattle, sheep, and all four-legged creatures. Following this blessing, he turns to the stones, cursing those who had been his enemies in battle with the Asag demon, and blessing those who had been his friends. Not a few Sumerian myths revolve about the ambitious, aggressive, and demanding goddess of love, Inanna, the Akkadian Ishtar, and her husband, the shepherd god Dumuzi, the biblical Tammuz.
The wooing of the goddess by Dumuzi is told in two versions. He contends for her favor with the farmer god in Kimdu, and is successful only after a good deal of quarrelsome argument leading to threats of violence. On the other hand, Dumuzi seems to find ready and immediate acceptance as Anana's lover and husband. Little did he dream that his marriage to Anana would end in his perdition, and that he would be dragged down to the underworld. This is told in one of the best preserved Sumerian myths, Inanna's Descent to the Netherworld, which has been published and revised three times in the course of the past 25 years, and it is about to be revised a fourth time with the help of several hitherto unknown tablets and fragments. It tells the following tale. Inanna, Queen of Heaven, the ambitious goddess of love and war, whom the shepherd Dumuzi had wooed and won for wife, descends to the Netherworld to make herself its mistress, and thus perhaps to raise the dead. She therefore collects the appropriate divine laws, and having adorned herself with her queenly robes and jewels, she is ready to enter the land of no return. The queen of the netherworld is her older sister and bitter enemy, Erish Gagal, Sumerian goddess of death and gloom. Fearing, not without reason, lest her sister put her to death in the domain she rules, Inanna instructs her vizier, Nishuba, who is always at her back and call, that if after three days she has failed to return, he is to set up a lament for her by the ruins, in the assembly hall of the gods. He is then to go to Nippur, the city of Enlil, the leading god of the Sumerian pantheon, and plead with him to save her, and not let her be put to death in the netherworld. If Enlil refuses, Nishubar is to go to Ur, the city of the moon god, Nana, and repeat his plea. Nana too refuses. He is to go to Eridu, the city of Enlil, the god of wisdom, who knows the food of life, who knows the water of life, and he will surely come to her rescue. Inanna then descends to the netherworld and approaches Erishkigal's temple of Lapith Lazuli. At the gate, she is met by the chief gatekeeper, who demands to know who she is and why she has come. Inanna concocts a false excuse for a visit, and the gatekeeper, on instructions from his mistress, leads her through the seven gates to the netherworld. As she passes through one gate after another, her garments and jewels are removed piece by piece, despite her protests. Finally, after entering the last gate, she is brought stark naked and on bended knees before Ereshkigal and the Unadnaki, the seven dreaded judges of the netherworld. Three days and three nights pass. On the fourth day, Ninsubu, seeing that his mistress has not returned, makes the rounds of the gods following her instructions. As Inanna had surmised, both Enlil and Nana refuse all help. Enki, however, devises a plan to restore her to life. He fashions the Kurgaru and the Kala too, two sexless creatures, and entrusts them to the food of life and the water of life, with instructions to proceed to the netherworld where Erishkigal, the birth-giving mother, lies sick. Though Inanna is once again alive, her troubles are far from over. For I was an unbroken rule of the land of no return, that no one who had entered its gates might return to the world above, unless he produced a substitute to take his place in the netherworld. Inanna is no exception to the rule. She is indeed permitted to reascend to the earth, but is accompanied by several restless demons, with instructions to bring her back to the lower regions if she cannot provide another deity to take her place. Surrounded by these ghoulish constables, Inanna first visits the two Sumerian cities, Uma and Bad-Tibira. The protecting gods of these cities, Shara and Latharak, terrified at the sight of the unearthly arrivals, clothe themselves in sackcloth and grovel in the dust before Inanna. Inanna 